So welcome to the Medical Liability Minute, where we talk for more than a minute. I'm your host, Jeff Siegel. I'm the CEO and founder of Medical Justice, and we're joined today by Dr. Scott Green. Who is Dr. Scott Green? Well, he's a plastic surgeon on the West Coast who has found himself in the middle of a 21st century storm unknown before COVID, and it has to do with um, a video Zoom conference with a traffic court after he had finished the substantive portion of the procedure. An internet storm and cyber mob has taken place afterwards. He's not had a chance to get his story out, the facts, the facts fully exonerate him. And this is his first conversation. So we are really excited to have uh, Scott uh, joining us tonight. Thanks for making time, Scott. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah, so why don't we set this up? Um, help our audience understand, first of all, who you are, what you do, and how you were mostly minding your own business, um, and then the world changed a bit for you. Set the stage. Well, um, I'm a plastic surgeon, as you already said. I've been in practice for 20 years. I'm 56 years old. Uh, started medicine essentially 30 years ago in medical school. I, um, I, for the first 10 years of my practice, took care of mm, both cosmetic and reconstructive patients. So cancer reconstruction, breast reconstruction from cancer, other types of problems, as well as some pediatric things, cleft lips, cleft palates, stuff like that, but then did a smattering of cosmetic surgery and started uh, in my area in plastic surgery being the first person who really took care of the patients who were morbidly obese. So mm. um, about the time I was in general surgery, gastric bypass came out and these right. weight loss surgeries came out. And I started taking care of when I was in plastic surgery and training some of these patients who had lost 150, 175, 200 pounds in my area in Sacramento. When I moved there, there was really nobody else who was helping these patients or taking care of them. So that's how my practice really began and took off was uh, following the footsteps of a, a very great pioneer surgeon, Theodore Lockwood, who sadly passed away of a glioblastoma multiforme tumor years ago. Um, but uh, I had the opportunity to talk with him a lot about our cases, our mutual types of surgeries that we did, and we shared a lot of our different experiences together. Wonderful man, and he taught me a lot both through his articles and through his talking about my patients personally when I would send pictures to him and speak with him about how to handle certain things because there was really no one, to, no one else to show me, not very many other people who dealt with this and certainly no one in my community. And so I spent the first part of my, my years in practice taking care of these patients who had lost this weight and trying to reconstruct their bodies after a couple hundred pound weight loss and reconstruct their faces and their breasts and different problems that they'd have with this excess skin suit that they had. Um, these are challenging then, uh, patients, I'm, I'm certain, meaning that sometimes it took more than one procedure to get them closer to their goal. Oh, yes, absolutely. Some of these patients would have three or four, sometimes even more procedures because there's, uh, you know, there's safety issues when you're operating on multiple areas and you, you consider different factors in caring for a patient, both, you know, their cardiovascular stability to handle something like that, their nutritional stability to handle something like that, which is a big factor in these patients who have lost a lot of weight, especially through gastric bypass. Their nutrition is very different. So, 
there's a lot of considerations when tackling these big kinds of cases, which is why most plastic surgeons early on really avoided these. And even today, there's still not a lot of plastic surgeons who spend a significant portion of their time taking care of these patients. But one thing I learned was that in my community, I was really the only one who did this. And even in the state of California, there were not a lot of people who uh, had the kind of experience I did. And because that, because of that, I was asked to speak at the California Society of Plastic Surgeons a couple of different times, actually quite a few different times. I agreed to speak two different times, but was was asked to speak a lot of different times. Um, and uh, just, you know, trying to find time in my schedule to do that to try and help other plastic surgeons and educate them because there's so many differences in how to care for a patient like that than how to care for a traditional patient who's not gone through that trouble. But in doing so, I realized that there was there was a general lack of knowledge regarding how to treat these people. And I gained so much knowledge in doing the surgery for years and from talking to Dr. Lockwood and sharing our cases back and forth that I thought uh, this would really be a great way to help people. These are patients who are kind of lost in the fray. You know, mm -hmm. they've lost all this weight and they're on this huge journey through life and a lot of them have some emotional struggles, uh, physical struggles still. And I thought I need to help these people and the best way for me to help these kinds of patients is to teach others to help them. And that's when I approached one of my partners and said, we need to start a fellowship. We need to start a fellowship where, where we can spread some of this knowledge, some of these things we've gained. Because, you know, Jeff, you know, Scott, it's kind of interesting. Are, you know, what's interesting is that you, you, we leap to this conclusion that if somebody weighs, like, I'll say 400 pounds and they lose 150 pounds, you think, wow, mission accomplished. They're done. But, what you're suggesting, and I think is accurate, is that that's the beginning, or maybe the end of the beginning, or the beginning of the end, but their their road is a long road. There, there are many more things to be done for them to get the kind of satisfactory outcome they're looking for. Jeff, many of these patients will tell you that they wish they had their weight back because they're so unhappy with the skin. They've got their grandpa's suit and they're a 10-year-old kid wearing it, yeah. and they they just don't know how to deal with it, and it's it's just tragic for them, you know, and that's, again, that's why I approached my partner and said, let's start a fellowship, let's teach people how to do this, because in my career, I might directly touch 30,000, 40,000 patients if I'm lucky, right. but if I, can, if I can have a career where I teach 20 fellows how to take care of these patients, now I've touched 800,000 patients, a million yeah, so like patients. Give a man a fish, he eats for a day. Give a man a fishing rod, he eats for a lifetime. Exactly. 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 So you started a fellowship, yeah. it sounds like. Is that accurate? We did. Ten years ago, I started a fellowship. Um, so I have my, my fellow that I have now is just finishing up. He's my 10th ten, my fellow. We take a... a uh, either already plastic surgeon who's practicing somewhere or someone who is finishing their plastic surgery residency. They're done. They're a, they're a plastic surgeon. Many of our fellows have been general surgery trained, gone through general surgery and then plastic surgery as our current fellow has. Mm -hmm. And then they sort of give up a year. They postpone starting their own practice and give up a year to come out and learn from us for a year. And 
and be mentored by us. Yeah. So these are highly trained individuals, people who are not at the beginning of their career. I mean, they've spent a great deal of time in the operating room and are, I guess, they're skilled in being able to work their way around the various body parts. I mean, you 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 can feel comfortable with them. They're they're highly trained, and um, you have a chance to see how they perform. Absolutely. I mean, all, you know, I mean, all of these people are you know in their early to mid thirties. I've had a couple that are in their late thirties, but they've been they've been doing surgery for almost a decade already. By the time we get them. Um, and and they're ready they're ready to roll but they just want to perfect some things they have they have small areas of expertise they want to perfect whether it be a nose a face or these body contouring on these patients who have lost weight you know they're trying to perfect and hone their skills so that they can honestly be the best they can possibly be and by the way um, to our, to our listeners this little nugget of information the fact that he trains fellows and the fellows are highly trained already will be entirely relevant to what happened uh, in the operating room during this Zoom teleconference in, in traffic court. But I digress. Keep going. Sorry, Scott. No, that's no, no, that's I think that's I think that's a pertinent point. I think but I think, you know, the, the thing about training these fellows is it really is what medicine is all about. It's the essence of it. I went into medicine because I love people. I care about people. A beautiful woman taught me that when I was 12 years old. Yeah, if you got time for a short story, this is a short story. She, uh, the lady had cancer. My father was a pharmaceutical rep for Eli Lilly Company. Back then, you know, when I was 12 years old, we didn't have uh, pharmacies on every corner. There was very few. So a physician called up my father and said, Doug, do you, can you take this medicine? You have this kind of medicine in your storage. My dad said, yes. Can you take this medicine over to that lady? And he put it in a brown paper bag. I rode my bike over to this lady's house and a quiet, very quiet, weak voice asked me to come in when I knocked on the door. Here's what happened. And here's the key that, that, changed me or changed, if not changed me, gave me an epiphany. Mm -hmm. She said to me, the first thing she said, Scott, was thank you for coming over and bringing this to me. She said, how's your dad? She said, I worry about him so. His back bothers him so much. And I know it hurts him all the time. And I've just been thinking about him and worrying about him. So the important thing there, Jeff, is this lady died a month later mm. of cancer. And she was 36 years old, and she had a family with six children, left a family with six children. So I had an epiphany at that moment that life is precious. People are beautiful. And anyone who can be dying and worry about other people, that is the essence of why we are here on this planet, is to be in the service of our fellow people. That's the well, essence of it. Yeah, That's well the, put, the well said. Well put and well said. And particularly for anyone in healthcare. I say that if you go in, the vast majority of people go into healthcare because they want to help people. If you want to go in this to make money, you, there really are easier ways to do it because medicine is a long road, a hard road. Um, but it's a very rewarding road because you do get a chance to help people. So you get a chance to see the fruits of your labor. And the vast majority of people are, you know, show gratitude and it, it's about giving back. So 
here, here. I, I fully support your, uh, your conclusion here. Absolutely. Thank you. <clears throat> All right. So take what us into, yeah, move us into, you know, 2020, 2021, because these have been very unusual times and interesting times. I mean, it sounds like you had a successful practice. Um, you had built a niche in terms of taking care of those who had significant weight loss and were able to give them the gift of really being new people fully, not just, you know, on the road to being a new person, but fully on the road to being new people. You had a fellowship, you know, and you were blessed to be around really talented people, a highly sought after uh, fellowship. And um, you have a, a bread and butter cosmetic and aesthetic practice, among other things. Very busy. Life is good. Um, then COVID hits and changes everybody's world. What was like life like for you last year, in, uh, 2020? Well, well, I think like uh, so many other people, we were sort of, you know, lost in the shuffle, not knowing what to do. We felt that it was our responsibility to shut down our surgical center at that time um, right. from a uh, just kind of a medical responsibility point of view. We wanted to make sure that uh, if our facility was near you, know, I mean, none of us knew what was coming. We wanted to make sure our facility was available if we were needed, yeah, that we were available if we were needed. We we dedicated and and you know called the state and told the state that they could use our ventilators if they needed. Um, you know, so we, we were preparing for preparing for the worst. Mm -hmm. uh, is really what happened. So uh, you know, we we sat home with the kids and. And uh, the kids started, you know, trying to do school after a while via the Internet. Um, <laughs> and that's where we've sort of been ever since. As far as the kids go, they're still they're still mostly home trying to do school on the Internet with our with our horrible reception in our house. But um, as far as back to work, we got back to work a few months later when they said, hey, it looks like uh, it looks like it's safe to go back if we follow certain protocols and, and certain things and do things a certain way. And so since then, we've been trying to keep uh, we've been really trying to be ahead of the curve. Um, we sort of set our restrictions for our surgical center kind of stricter than anyone else we knew. We wanted to make sure we were as strict as the strictest hospital. So we have, you know, strict uh, COVID testing ahead of time with only a certain type of testing that we allow. Uh, we require that they, people get their COVID test at a certain place. We require that they then quarantine after that to make sure that both they are safe and the staff in our center is safe, safe or anybody else who comes into our center is safe. Um, and I think, you know, the hospitals have kind of been doing this, uh, but I know as far as most places we were at the very very head of the curve we were following the advice of the anesthesiologists at mercy general hospital as to what to do and we just told them hey we want to be as safe as we possibly can so what sort of restrictions do we need to write to make sure that that we are as as safe and compliant with everything we can be as possible and and that's where we've been since gotten but in, in terms of listening to this narrative i would not come to the conclusion that you're a cavalier individual cutting corners. I mean, I, I believe you are certainly innovative, but I would not conclude you're a person that would be classified as as cavalier. Is that a fair statement? 
Yeah, I would say that's true. I'm certainly not a cowboy in any way. I, um, right. you know, I mean, a lot of a lot of plastic surgeons, and I think a lot of people in general were just trying to survive. Um, and and so some people were still doing surgery, even though there was this general consensus that people should shut down. There's certainly we had loopholes. We weren't. It was not required of us to shut down. We shut down out of out of respect for the public and respect for what was going on, and and to make sure that we were as compliant with everything as we possibly could be. Um, many people I knew didn't shut down, and that, right. we so we you- just took a different. You got a chance to open back up and then things were kind of stabilizing. You ended up getting a traffic ticket, I guess, allegedly for going uh, 15 miles over the posted speed limit. I don't think we need to get into the details of that. But suffice it to say is that you're a person who stands on principle and you believed in your heart of hearts. You were not guilty of that. And while many of us were would just say, I'll just turn it over to a lawyer and have him strike it down, plea it down to improper uh, equipment that you get one mulligan uh, if you've got a decent record. And I understood that you had kind of an an enviable traffic record. I wish my record was as good as yours. Sadly, it has not been, but (laughs) I'm getting better as I get older. My foot has lightened up in many ways. Um, But anyway, we can agree on those set of facts. but you wanted your day in court. Um, you didn't hire an attorney to do this. You thought the facts were on your side. Now bring us up to speed. No, no pun intended by bringing well, us up to speed here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was say, yeah. Well, the, the the speed was the issue, and you know, I mean, I I, I didn't think that I'd been speeding. You're right. Um, and uh, I had talked about it with the police officer, but I was, you know, I tried to be respectful to her, and I said, you know, okay. Um, you know, I'll, I'll take the ticket. Um, but I, I, I did want to discuss it in court, um, the facts of the case. And I thought that the court case had actually been scheduled a month and a half or so prior and which I cleared my schedule for and, and got on a zoom feed for, um, I actually made multiple mistakes trying to get on that zoom feed and, and was, ended up being, kind of late because I couldn't figure out how to log into it properly. Uh, but, but thankfully I wasn't so late that you're they already the only, called me in then. You're not the only one, believe yeah. me. You're not the only one. Yeah. Go on. Yeah. Th- thankfully, thankfully they hadn't called my name yet uh, when I did it, but I was, I was like 20 minutes late trying to figure out how to get on my zoom feed myself and I had to help, had to get help from my office. It's just not my forte, but, mm-hmm. um, when I got on there, they said, no, 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 this isn't, this isn't the hearing. This is just, you just are supposed to just enter a plea. Were you speeding or weren't you? Oh, and I said, I said, oh, okay. No, I wasn't. And they said, okay, your court date will be scheduled for this time this day. Mm. And uh, you need this different Zoom thing to, uh, you know, to talk about that and set that all up. And I said, okay. And so I, I took it to my office staff and I said, hey, how do I do this? I got to get to this different thing. And so we did that. And my, my office staff then got back to me and said, hey, I, we talked to the court and told them that you already have cases scheduled that day at that time. Um, do you think you'll be done? And I looked at the schedule and I said, you know, I don't know. I think so. What did they say? Was it three o'clock? And they said, well, it's supposed to be somewhere between three and five. We don't know when they're going to call. That sounds like the cable people. We'll be at your house between noon and 5 p.m. So just be there. 
exactly. And you just sit there and you wait. You sit and wait. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, well, we'll do our best. I'll do my best to get done. And, and we'll, we'll hope that's the way it goes. And if it doesn't, I'll, I'll, we'll try and figure it out. I'm not sure what we'll have to do. We'll have to, you know, tell the judge we're not done. That's what we'll have to now, do. These were people that um, were already scheduled, correct? Meaning that you had already seen them. You had evaluated yeah. them. They had cleared their schedules to have the surgery exactly. um, and they'd reserved their recovery time. So they'd, They'd worked their lives around this day. You reserved the day for them, and you just you were going to honor this commitment. Um, and so we had this looming challenge with the court date, you know. And you believed it sounds like um, you had five cases, and if things moved as you anticipated they would, you would be done by this three to five p.m. window. Exactly. And, and and that's just exactly it. You know, I don't I don't ever move a patient lightly. I can tell mm-hmm. you in 20 years, I've never called in sick ever. Not once. Um, because you just don't you do, I mean, you don't take that commitment lightly. These patients, some people have flown their family members out to help, you know, help aid them or their 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 family member has already taken off work and or they're using their vacation. You just you just can't. You can't mess with people's lives that way. You got to respect that and honor that. And so right. I do. Um, so that was that was just it. And that's what we told the court is, hey, we're, we're we may be stuck. So it may just be a situation where we've got to we've got to postpone if that's what it comes to. And having never been in a traffic court situation, I didn't know what rights I had or who I'd be speaking to or even how it would go. But I told my staff, I said, listen, you know, just. Uh, you know, my staff is all downstairs except for my OR team who's upstairs in the OR. And so I left my phone with my staff downstairs and I said, you know, if, if whatever we got to do, just if something happens, let me know. And hopefully I'll be done by then. I think I will. And you were making progress. Said, okay. So this was, this was a facelift case, correct? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Sir. Keep going. And, 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 you know, I was doing the surgery and doing um, the salient parts of the procedure. Mm-hmm. And I was done with really the salient parts of the procedure. And at that point, had turned the procedure over to my fellow. I was pointing some different things out to him, but was mostly sitting back done with the procedure with my with the, with the salient parts of it. And the salient parts in, in my mind really are you know, the first part began with the brow surgery and doing the brow surgery. And, and I did that. I did my portion, showed him his portion. He helped a little bit with that. And then I did the, the neck and my side of the case. And we started his side of the case with, I let him do portions of that. And then we were really close in what's called the SMAS, the deep tissues in the face. And I had already done my part. It was his turn. And so I was observing him and they ran upstairs and said, Hey, there's uh they're on, they're on the line. And I was like, Oh goodness. Um, well, I'm not done. And there was a man that appeared in the court that said, you know, something to me, but I couldn't hear him well because the zoom was cutting in and out like zoom seems to do often. So let's take it a time out for a out. second. Was, let, let's take a time out. I do have a question for you. If, for example, at that moment in time, you would have just said, hey, I'm checking out, I'm going to eat, I'm going to the bathroom, I'm going upstairs, finish the job to your assistant, you know, the fellow was there. 
did he have the background training and experience to finish that? Had he ever done that before? Yes. Yeah. So, um, Absolutely. so it wasn't atypical, meaning that he was trained. And even though this is a training program, it's not unusual, nor is it uncommon to have the fellow finish the job here. Is that, a, I mean, it wouldn't have surprised your patient. It wouldn't have surprised yeah. another surgeon. It wouldn't have surprised you. I mean, it's something that would not have been unusual. Now, I'm guessing you probably would have stuck stuck around in a perfect world because it's a teaching program and you seem to be, um, you know, all in on this. But by and large, in many training programs across the country, residents and fellows um, are capable and competent of opening and closing. I mean, it's kind of part of the job. Well, I mean, as you know, Jeff, medicine is meant is a mentorship. And, mm -hmm. and that's the way it, the medicine began in its very early beginnings. It really was doctor teaching student and student becoming the teacher. And that is how all of us learn. We've all learned because somebody told us what to do, showed us what to do, and then let us do it mm -hmm. and observed us, made sure we could do it as good as them, and then let us move on. The and C1, that's, that's how all yeah, the C1, do one, teach one paradigm. Exactly. And, 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 it's, and it's usually more than one. Of course. <laughs> yes, I, I'm at the, the global but, one, yeah. not the, yeah. not the numerical yeah, absolutely. one. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, 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 that's, and, and you know, that's just the way medicine is. And that's the, that's the beautiful thing about it, that medicine, unlike really, Jeff, eh, almost anything else in the world, we don't hold our knowledge and protect it. We don't keep our knowledge from other people. We, we, don't, we don't patent our knowledge so no one else can use the best technique. We share it freely because it's not us we're trying to protect. It's not the next doctor we're trying to protect. It's the patient that we're trying to serve. That's here, the goal. Here's, so, an yeah, here's an interesting legal nugget that if you, I mean, Theoretically, it is possible to patent a medical procedure. It's possible to get a patent on that, but it's not enforceable. Yeah. So the only reason to do it is really for bragging rights. There's no way you can monetize and keep it to yourself for a medical procedure, interestingly enough. But but again, I yeah, digress. Sorry about that. Yeah, no, you're no, you're hundred percent right. And 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 the overlying principle is because we're serving people. And so why would we ever want to to prevent some other surgeon from helping the per another person the best we could. We wouldn't want to. That's medicine. That's that's what it's about. It's about caring about people, teaching people, teaching each other. And that's what the fellowship's about, um, is to try and take the knowledge that we've gained and pass it on to these guys. Give them their last few little little bits of precious information that we've collected over the past time so that they can go out there and be better surgeons than we were. I want my fellows to be better than I am, every one of them. And when they leave, they are fantastic because they've been trained by me and my partners. And so they've got information from all of us and they can go out there and just take it by storm and really, really, really help people in ways that people 30 years, 40 years ago couldn't do. And that's awesome. So with the benefit of hindsight, you probably would have stepped out into the hall try, if you had decent internet connection out there and 
interacted with the judge or the commissioner, the, whoever the officer of the court is, and you would have um, told the fellow, you're up, finish the job, and um, I'll probably be back in five minutes, 10 minutes at most, but, but keep rolling, no reason to keep the patient waiting. And I think that's kind of the conundrum. I mean, you didn't have the benefit of hindsight, you do now, but um, it sounds like the connection to the court was suboptimal, they kept cutting in and cutting out, and it was unclear. And since you had never been in court or traffic court before, it was, you know, you showed appropriate respect and deference. And um, that's when, that's when the world kind of changed a bit for you, but not for the patient. I mean, it sounds like the patient was on the exact same trajectory. There was no, no problem at all at any point. Not for five minutes. Not for one minute. Not for one second. With patient safety or patient confidentiality, but, but what happened next? Well, I mean, as far as the patient goes, you're right. Yeah. Everything went great. Case was finished and, uh, and patient went home, did great. She's been back. She's still doing great. Uh, but the world kind of exploded as far as, as far as this media craze, because people didn't really have the facts. They, they saw me uh, talking to the court that I couldn't really hear. Um, and you're right, you know, I mean, in, 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 in fact, if I had, if, if with the benefit of hindsight, I would have just said immediately, hey, I'm still in surgery, I can't, I can't talk, I'm sorry, I apologize. I, I was trying to be respectful to the court, um, but I couldn't even hear what they were saying to me. I kept, and I said, you know, a couple times, which I didn't see that in the video clip, but I said a couple times, hey, it, it's frozen up. I can't, the, the, the person's face is frozen up. So there's just, there's things that happened in that that I couldn't even tell what was going on. But my goal was to just get off the call and, you know, continue to watch my fellow and, and advise him as he wanted me to, uh, which, is, which is my standard practice. But now, since then, uh, people have interpreted this all wrong. And then the truth is, I think the general public doesn't understand really how medicine is practiced. They don't understand that I had another surgeon sitting right there with the patient. They don't even understand that the patient was mostly awake during the surgery. This is a, a surgery where you're just under twilight. I mean, the patient can talk to me or I can ask them to open their eyes, close their eyes, turn their head. I mean, they're, they're awake. They're perfectly safe. They're, they've got someone providing um, anesthesia for them right there, just the IV anesthesia for them if they need that. They've got me there, a surgeon. They've got another surgeon there. They've got another assistant there. All those people are still in the room all at the same time. So yeah, absolutely. I could have stepped out and done that. It's not my usual practice, but I certainly could have. And, and I have done that before with this fellow letting him close the end of a case before, but he, because he's perfectly competent to do that. And that's, that's not unusual. And like, like you've said in the past, you might have to get up and go to the bathroom in the middle of a case. You might have to do something like that in the middle of a case. And that's, you don't do that at the critical portions, but you certainly can do that in the circumstance where a patient is totally safe. And those are just and let's the tell normal the public, things. That this, this is a news, news flash, everyone. Ladies and gentlemen, we're dealing with biology right here. Yes, surgeons have bladders. Surgeons have appetites. And correct. For the critical portion of the procedure, there's not a surgeon in the country that will leave the room.
but for the non-critical portion of the procedure. And frequently, there are many such aspects uh, in a case. If nature calls and it can't be held, uh, surgeons are no different than transcontinental pilots. They're no different than Navy SEALs and no different than astronauts. When nature calls and you have an opportunity and it's completely and totally safe, you can quickly take advantage of it. This happens in in every hospital across the country every single day. Now, I don't know that the public appreciates that. They assume that you know the surgeon is laser focused from beginning to end on the case. The, and I can conclude that the surgeon is laser focused on patient safety and would never go out of their way to compromise anything related uh, to safety. But to the extent that the surgeon reasonably believes in their judgment that the patient is safe and nature calls, surgeons will go out and take a quick break and leave the room for five minutes, 10 minutes, maybe even longer, as long as, and particularly if there's someone else there babysitting or even operating on the patient who's technically adept. This happens every day across the country, but I don't know the public knows that. They may know it now, but I don't think they knew it before. And this is a real wake-up call. I mean, a lot of times we do things because it's always been that way. When I was a resident, the my first year as an intern, we were on call 36 hours off 12. Why were we on call 36 hours and then off 12? Mainly because it had always been done that way before. It was a way to demonstrate our commitment to the art of medicine, to the art of surgery. Um, but I would argue, with the benefit of hindsight, that always being on call 36 hours is probably not a great thing because you're frequently exhausted. In fact, you're always exhausted. And maybe there's a better way to do something, um, particularly if we're talking about patient safety. So always being on, you know, eyes open, focused on a patient in front of you isn't necessarily the safest for the patient. We should think holistically what it means for patient safety. And I think the biggest learning point, you know, from this particular case is that the the public, even doctors, even doctors leap to the conclusion that somehow you are acting in a very cavalier way in the middle of an important part of the case and that a traffic ticket was more important than this patient's uh, well-being in their life. And it's patently ridiculous. And certainly, if, if I had leapt to that conclusion, I'd probably want to know more. What's fascinating to me is how few people really wanted to learn more. Now, I know as physicians, we are trained to leap to conclusions We're, with, with incomplete information, meaning that we will you know, get a history and come up with a presumptive diagnosis and maybe stick to it. And if it doesn't look like it's playing in the right direction, gather more facts and update our preliminary diagnosis. But in your particular case, it, it was shocking to me how many people in the public, including physicians, leapt to a final diagnosis without even asking other facts, scratching their head. I wonder whether there was someone else in the room. I wonder if the case was over. I mean, they took this all at face value. And to me, that was that was even more shocking than the fact, you know, than the subject of their conclusion. And uh, I, I know you feel yep. the same way. I, I know you feel that you didn't really get the facts out and you've almost been muted 
by this cyber mob and uproar looking for a scalp. And I'm so glad you've been able to get the facts out here tonight because I think reasonable people, if they hear the facts, can kind of come to the conclusion, well, you know, maybe there was more to this. And it's almost shameful that so many people leapt to an incorrect conclusion. I'm hoping that, you know, the, the smarter ones of us will self-correct and come to the more reasonable conclusion, which is, yeah, maybe the optics weren't as good as they could have been, but at no point was patient safety or confidentiality at risk. Guiding principles. Yeah, Jeff, I agree with you completely. I agree with you completely. Thank you for that. Yeah, um, I'm. I'm sorry you have gone through this. I mean, it's. You know, it's interesting. I was going through the literature, and saw that in 2015, the Boston Globe did an expose, and I call it an expose because, well, I don't know if expose is the right word because they wrote a, a scathing article about overlapping surgery at Mass General Hospital, one of the iconic institutions of the country. What is meant by overlapping surgery? Well, it just means a surgeon running two rooms. Um, now, contrast that with concurrent surgery, where again, a surgeon's running two rooms, but there the patient is kept waiting, meaning that you start kind of the same time on both cases, um, opening, both cases, and then the surgeon does the main part, the guts, the first patient, the other one's waiting, and then the surgeon comes in and does the main part on the second patient. That's concurrent surgery. Most people would argue, and I think most people would agree, that concurrent surgery is not such a good thing to do. It's probably unethical because you're keeping that second patient waiting under general anesthesia, increasing the anesthesia time. But overlapping surgery is different. Overlapping surgery is when you kind of start in a staggered way, meaning that as one patient is being closed, the other patient is being opened, and that the, the main surgeon, the attending surgeon, can do his main thing, never keeping any of these people waiting with you know undue or excess anesthesia time, overlapping surgery. So what did the Boston Globe write? I go, this is shocking, you know, that um, you shouldn't ever do run two rooms a, at once. The surgeons, of course, had a different viewpoint. They said, well, look, if we can run two rooms this way, um, the surgeon is devoting his uh, mandatory time, focusing on the patient properly, and neither of these patients have any excess anesthesia time. It allows us to see more patients, more complicated patients, more people can get valuable services instead of queuing up in line. And so what happened? It turns out that ended up um, there was a significant investigation trying to identify are there safety problems related to overlapping surgery? And the answer is there were not, meaning that patients did reasonably well. The conclusion being that overlapping surgery is safe, ethical, not inappropriate. In fact, there are benefits uh, to be had, particularly at teaching institutions. Now, think about it for a moment. In that particular situation I just described, the main surgeon, the attending surgeon, is not even in the room for the second patient. They're outside of the room. Yet that, that's an entirely acceptable phenomenon. I don't know that the public is aware of it, but certainly after the Boston Globe article, the public should be aware of it. 
and I, I go back to your situation, you had an, you were, first of all, you were in the room. You didn't even leave the room. But if you had left the room, um, it wouldn't have been entirely inappropriate. It would have been perfectly fine. So I, I hate Absolutely. that you've gone, I hate that you've gone through this odyssey. And I'm hoping that with this additional information that we will make available to the public, and I hope you will make it available through other outlets, I'm hoping that a more balanced discussion can take place and you're given a fair, a fair and appropriate hearing in the general public. And I hope you just get back to the life that you had, you know, a couple of weeks ago, which sounded pretty damn good. Jeff, I appreciate all of that. I really do. And that's what I hope too. You know, at the end of the day, caring about people's my life. That's, that's what I live for to me. Medicine is the most noble profession on the planet. Caring for somebody else. There's no better way to live a life than a life lived serving other people. And that's that's what I want to do. That's all I care about. Scott, I do have one final question. Have you? Um, how do you feel about the speed limit now? Do you think that you're, um, you'll never go one mile an hour over the speed limit going forward? Do we have that commitment from you well, tonight? I can tell you I currently have some anxiety about going over the speed limit. I sure don't want a ticket any time in the next 10 years or so. <laughs> well, well, yes. Okay. Amen to that. Listen, Scott, thanks for breaking out and making time to speak to our general audience tonight. I wish you nothing but success in life. And I wish, I hope, I hope to get this behind you as soon as possible. Thanks again. Okay. Thank you. Jeff. Thank you. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epison Frank O News at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336 358 5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of 
the medical liability minute.